0: Amen, church. It's good to be back with you this morning. If you would, go to 1 Timothy chapter 5. 1 Timothy chapter 5, we will jump into verse 9 through 16. Hear the word of the living God. Let a widow be enrolled, if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband, and having a reputation for good works, if she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work, but refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ... They desire to marry, and so incurred condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going abound from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander." For some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened, so that it may care for those who are truly widows. And so, Heavenly Father, once again, we just plead for your help. We pray that your Spirit would illuminate this text and help us to see all that has been revealed, and how it applies to our lives for Christ's glory. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to jump right back into uh, chapter 5 where Pastor John Mark left off last week. And one of the things that I love about expositing epistles is that as you just read the epistle over and over, and as you get to the end of the epistle, it's like your mind just gets so deep into the thought of the author so that it, you have to just reach back into previous passages in order to make sense in terms of what is in front of you. And so we will reach back into last week's uh, section as well. And we see here uh, in Paul's mind that there is a theme in chapter 5 that continues to come up, and it's the theme of honor. And so last week, Pastor John Mark spent some time dealing with uh, the theme of honor And we see in this passage this morning uh, that Paul has in mind a specific aspect of honor and it's financial or what we could say material honor. And so honor uh, will look different when giving it to different people at different times. And so when we think about the fifth commandment, honor your father and your mother, uh, that honor will look different depending on the nature of the relationship uh, between the child and the parents. And so when a child is living at home and is fully dependent on his parents for everything, honor looks like joyful, obedience, always, right away. Amen? But when that child grows up and leaves his father and mother and holds fast to his wife and leaves the home and gets married, he still has a responsibility to honor his father and mother, uh, but that honor will look a lot differently. And so, uh, we need to be asking the question, uh, what does does Paul mean when he says in verse 3, going back to verse 3 from last week, he says, honor widows who are truly widows. He gives a command to the church, honor widows who are truly widows. But then in verse 5, he clarifies what he means by truly widows. He says, she who is truly a widow left all alone, has set her hope on God, and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. And so what does it look like to honor a widow who has been left all alone, does not have a husband, and does not have younger children to care for her? Uh, Well, it certainly involves respecting her. Uh, It certainly involves having an attitude of gentleness and compassion toward her, but it goes beyond that. It needs to go beyond just the attitude toward her, and it needs to stretch into the realm of material provision. And so to truly honor a widow is to make sure that she has the material and financial needs met for her to be comfortable, to live out the rest of her days in comfort, having all that she needs. Uh, James 2 15 to 17 is helpful in understanding this. He says, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled without giving them the things needed for the body. He says, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So it's, it's not sufficient uh, to merely honor uh, those who are truly in need by having compassion toward them or being gentle toward them or respectful toward them, knowing they have provision, knowing they have material needs that we can meet, but yet refuse to provide for those needs. That is not true honor. And this responsibility to honor uh, aging parents, to honor uh, true widows, uh, it's not first and foremost given to the church. Uh, we need to see this clear here. Uh, the, the command is first and foremost given to relatives and to the household, the children or the grandchildren of the widows. And so this brings us to a very important point that I want to spend uh, some time building out. Here, here, here's my point for the morning. The family not the church, and not the state, is the God-ordained primary sphere for financial provision. Or we could say it more simply like this, God has designed the domestic sphere to be the primary sphere where material needs are met. The family, not the church, and not the state. The family. We see this in verse 4. He says, But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. It pleases God when family members provide for their relatives. It pleases God uh, when people in their own household, when a father provides for his wife and his children. It pleases God when adult children provide for and care for their aging parents. Why? Because this is God's design. You are being obedient to God when you care for those in your household. And the emphasis here in this text is on caring for aging parents who are dependent upon someone else to provide for them. And then going down to verse 16, if any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. And then listen, let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. And I want to argue This morning that successfully uh, ordering our beneficence or our benevolence as Christians and as a church is essential to our witness and our purity to the world. And it's clear here that Paul is concerned about a couple of things. Uh, As he's giving uh, Timothy these instructions, uh, he is concerned that there would be professing believers in the church, particularly men who would have wives and have children and who would refuse to care for them and receive financial help from the church. And he goes on to say in verses 7 and 8, command these things as well so that it may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Is that loving? Would we consider that loving today? He says, if professing believers will not provide for those God has entrusted to their care, especially a man's own wife and children, or if there's adult children who have aging parents, a widowed mother, and who refuse to care for her, they actually have shown themselves to be more morally bankrupt than non-believers who do do that. Because there are non-believers, though they reject Christ as Lord and Savior, they will at least go to work and provide for their wives and their children. And provide for their aging parents. And he says, if a believer will not do this, he is worse than an unbeliever. Patrick Fairbairn says this, the parent who refuses, if he is able, to support his children while from youth or infirmity they are dependent on his care and help, or the children who refuse to minister to the sustenance and comfort of aged parents, both alike act an unfilling and unnatural part. They are not true to the moral instincts of their own nature and fall beneath the standard which has been recognized and acted on by the better class of heathens. For one, therefore, bearing the Christian name to disregard such claims is utterly inexcusable. It is not simply dishonoring to Christ. It is to bring reproach on our common humanity. And so Fairbairn is arguing it is so clear that a man is to provide for his family that not to do it, to refuse to do it, is to reject reality, to reject nature, To bring bring reproach on Christ, yes, but it's to reject all that is seen in nature. No wonder Paul comes down so harshly on this issue. And we see the other concern that Paul has in verses 11-13. to He says, but refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry, and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers going about from house to house. And not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies saying what they should not. And so Paul is concerned that the church would support younger widows who are not beyond the age of marrying and not beyond the age of childbearing or self-support. And actually, by providing for their needs, enable them to live a life of ungodliness. That's his concern. And by providing for them and caring for them, the church would be removing from them the areas of life that would keep them from being gossips and busybodies and slanderers. And he goes on to say in verse 14, so I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and listen, and give the adversary no occasion for slander." Paul's concern here is the church's purity toward the world. He's concerned that the church would have a pure witness to an onlooking world as the church is proclaiming its message to it. And he's willing to take great pains to ensure that the adversary is given no occasion to slander the church and to undermine the Gospel message. Not only... Is he concerned about keeping the church's witness pure uh, before the world? Uh, But Paul believes that this is what's best for younger widows. He actually believes that this lifestyle is best. Verse 15, he says, "...for some have already strayed after Satan." And so for a young widow, and I think we could say a young woman, uh, to get married, to have children, to manage the home, to be busy in the domestic sphere is to keep herself from the kind of life that would lead itself to going after Satan. That's his argument. Remember, he said back in verses 5 and 6, she who is truly a widow left all alone has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But listen, but she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. John Mark has taught on this quite a bit over the years so I don't feel I need to spend a great deal of time here Uh, but it's worth pointing out again brothers and sisters uh, it is shocking It, it is shocking how radically opposed the feminist definition for successful womanhood and God's definition for successful womanhood actually are they are totally opposite They are totally in opposition to one another. Feminism says, don't submit to your husband. Don't have children. Leave the home. Pursue everything you want to pursue. Be all you want to be. Pursue your passions, your pleasures, your dreams. And yet God calls that, when done for the sake of selfishness, a woman who, though her heart is beating, she's actually dead while she lives. She's strayed after Satan as she's given herself over to self-indulgence and worldliness. That's Paul's concern. And so he's saying to Timothy, Timothy, the worst thing we can do is provide for younger women to have all their needs met while they have nothing to do so that all they can do is go on and live a life that would bring reproach on the church and ultimately lead to the destruction of the souls of the younger widows. It's the worst thing you can do, Timothy. He says, rather, have them get married and have children and labor in the domestic sphere so that they will grow in godliness and persevere to the end. As I've thought about this this week, this passage, I think, sheds light on 1 Timothy 2.15, which says a woman will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. I'm sure we've all wondered about what that verse means. We got into this a, a few, a couple of months ago. Uh, but the very nature of God's design for women in the domestic sphere and having children lends itself to sanctification. It, it, it's almost like it forces a woman to be sanctified, to die to worldly passions, to die to worldly pleasures. And so getting married, having children, and being consumed by domestic duties forces a godly woman to die to all that Satan would try to latch onto and destroy her soul. What a blessing. What a blessing. That's not oppressive. That's liberating. It's a blessing from God. And it leads to perseverance. And what if you currently are not married or do not have children? Well, the text doesn't say this, but I think uh, an important principle abides here whether you're a uh, young man or a young woman. Be busy. Consume yourself with productive things. Serve the church. Earn money. Be a blessing. Busy yourself with good, productive things so that the enemy doesn't latch onto your life and lead you astray. The season of singleness comes with a great deal of freedom and an abundance of free time. I know you singles may not think you have a whole lot of free time, but it lends itself um, possibly with the adversary of our souls to lead toward destruction. And one of the greatest blessings, I'll be honest, that I've seen in this church is the way that the singles love people. I've never seen anything like it in my life. Giving of themselves. Giving of their time. Not using their time for selfishness. I am very blessed by the singles in this church. Uh, you, You are doing this, and I commend you and encourage you to continue in this way and guys we see from all of this a very important conclusion about the Christian life and it's this you know our Christian witness our testimony uh, that we are submitted to the lordship of Christ cannot be just truncated down to an hour and a half of worship on Sunday morning and maybe a couple of hours in a community group and maybe even a half an hour Private devotion every week. It cannot be boiled down to just that. Uh, we, we cannot say that the Christian life is just reading our Bibles and having right theology and spending some time with Christians. That's a huge part of it. It's never less than that, but it is more. Paul actually sees the way a man works hard to provide for his home And he actually sees that the way adult children care for their aging parents as godliness. As being submitted to the Lordship of Christ. Of bearing fruit. He actually sees that the way a wife keeps her feet at home and works hard to manage her home. And raise her children and love her husband. And caring for her her aging parents. He sees that as vital to the church's witness to the world to continue in the purity of the church. I mean, guys, think about how unrespectable the modern welfare system has become. Think about this. And I'm not sitting here saying that there's never a place for governmental assistance ever. But when you think about healthy, abled adults, month after month, year after year, just receiving money To sit around and do nothing all day. Is that respectable? No, it brings reproach on the system. Uh, Millions of non-believers find a problem with that. It is not the way God has designed humanity to work. And so think about what the unbelieving world thinks if it looks at the church and sees the church providing materially for people to be lazy And to go around and to sow gossip and slander and be unorderly and disorderly and confused and it's all disorganized. How does the unbelieving world think about that when it sees that in the church? What will the world think if the church condones men who who morally are so worthless that they will not even provide for their own wives and children? How does the world view that? Does does that undermine the gospel message? That's Paul's concern. It's Paul's concern. And I think uh, that the same thing is going on in 1 Corinthians 5 when the church was tolerating the man who had committed grievous sexual immorality and did not discipline him. And Paul rebukes the church and says, look, this kind of immorality is not even tolerated by Gentiles in Corinth, which is the most sexually explicit culture in in the whole Roman world. And, And those Gentiles don't even tolerate the kind of thing that this man is doing. And you're arrogant because you think you're being loving by tolerating him. And he says, no. The next time you gather on the Lord's day, you are to discipline him out of the church. You are to remove the leaven from among your midst before the leaven leavens the whole lump. And so again, what kind of testimony are we giving to the world if our families and our homes are not in order? If we are unruly and idle and lazy and then the church just turns a blind eye to it and supports people who are walking in that disorderly way of living. Brothers and sisters, uh, there's something else in this text that we can't skip over. Paul goes beyond just giving age requirements for the widows to meet before they can get on the church's role to be cared for, he actually gives moral requirements that the widows must meet before they are eligible to receive material benevolence from the church. Look at verses 9 and 10. He says, Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband, and having a reputation for good works. If she is brought up children, has shown hospitality, and has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. And this isn't a rigid checklist, right? The, the, the qualification suggests that the widow must be godly. She must be exemplary. Her current life and her former life when she was married and she did have children, it must not be open to legitimate accusations on moral grounds. And again, notice the focus on the domestic sphere. He says, having a good reputation for good works, but then he unpacks what good works are. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted. Guys, I hope all this is encouraging to the sisters here this morning. You know, we have very few sisters here who are widows. Uh, But these qualifications describe what Paul views to be an exemplary, godly woman. Lean into these things. It is not in vain. It is godliness. And in the same way uh, that elders and deacons must be morally exemplary before they are qualified to serve in the office, widows, according to Paul, must be morally exemplary before Paul will, will permit them to be entrusted to the church's ongoing care. And I think that is what is at stake here. A, a church, uh, Paul is not saying that, this is, that the only person a church can ever care for under any circumstance is a widow over the age of 60. That, that's not the point. I think what is happening here is you have widows who are going to be entrusted to, to the church's care for the rest of their lives. And and Paul is saying, if they're going to be registered to be cared for for the rest of their lives, they need to be exemplary. Why? Because it is paramount for Paul that the church's pure witness be preserved so that the enemy has no occasion to slander the church and undermine the gospel message. And so, if the church commits to care for a widow whose life is open to all sorts of charges, On moral ground, what's at stake? The church's credibility is at stake. The message is at stake. So for the same reason that elders must have proven themselves to be competent in the domestic realm before they can be elders... And in the same way that deacons must have proven themselves to be worthy as deacons before they can serve in the office, widows over the age of 60 who are left all alone must have shown themselves to be above reproach as a godly woman before Paul will permit the church to care for them ongoingly. To care for them for the rest of their lives. And I do think that that is what is in view here. And I think it's likely that the widows would have in turn committed to doing some service for the church, whether it's prayer or whether it's serving younger ladies, some kind of service would have been given in exchange. And guys, you know, when we think about this, we've all heard people say, you know, that the church is just full of a bunch of hypocrites. You heard this? I think we all have, Uh, you know, I, telling people how to live when they don't live right themselves. And I hope um, that we are equipped to push back against that kind of faulty assertion. However, while the assertion is faulty, there is some truth to the fact that when there are scandals in the church and when the church is given over to all sorts of moral corruption and charges, it actually does make it a hindrance for non-believers to receive the message and want to believe and come into the church. That's actually true. We we can actually provide a stumbling block for non-believers from hearing the message when our lives and our churches are not ordered rightly after God's design. And we see something similar in 2 Thessalonians 3, 6-12. But here the focus is on men who refuse to work and provide their own living. And I want to read this because I want to show you that this isn't just some hard, right, conservative approach. This is Paul's approach. And Paul, the apostle of love and grace, says this in 2 Thessalonians 3. I love hearing Bible pages turn. He says, now we commend you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. Now listen, for when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. Would those instructions be considered loving today? Would you consider those instructions loving today? If a man in the church is not willing to work, don't feed him. Let let him go a few days without eating and maybe the empty pit in his stomach will drive him to work and provide for his own Livelihood. If a man is so lazy and lacking in conviction that he won't even work to provide his own living, don't keep providing for him. You're actually enabling him, church, to continue in disobedient living. Enabling him not to honor God. And so, uh, the world looks at this and says, why... Would we want to hear a message from an organization, because that's what the world thinks the church is, when we look at the church and there's disorder everywhere and there's things that we don't even tolerate? Why why would we want to hear that message? That's Paul's concern. And so Paul wants the non-believing Roman world to look at the church and see order and purity and stability And family operating the way God designed it to operate. And men and women thriving in the roles God gave them to thrive in. And younger children caring for their aging mothers and providing for their needs. And that is a testimony to the world. And not only this, but Paul says, in the name of the Lord Jesus, we command and encourage these people to work quietly and earn their own living. Ultimately, these are Jesus' instructions through Paul. This is Christ's idea for His church. And all of this is raising a really important question that we need to answer rightly. Who, who does the church have an obligation, right, a responsibility as a local body to care for materi- materially? Have you ever thought about that? Who does the church have an obligation not talking about, you know, Christian freedom where we as Christians have freedom to do good and and to bless people and all of that. I'm talking about an official assembly. Who do we have a responsibility to care for materially? That's a vitally important question to get right. And there are a lot of people who give vastly different answers to that question. And I'm sure we've all heard someone say something like this. You know, the church should be the ones caring for the poor. Uh, The the church should be distributing provisions to everybody who has need. Uh, The church should be alleviating physical burdens and making sure that no one goes hungry. Uh, We are to be the hands and the feet of Jesus by feeding the poor and by distributing clothing in these types of ministries. Uh, Have you heard this? It, It sounds pretty true. Sounds pretty good. And there are people who make the argument from Acts 2 that the church actually promotes socialism. Remember back in Acts 2, it says that uh, everybody had all things in common and and that the people who owned land would sell the land and distribute it and the apostles would distribute it to all who had need. And so people will look at that text and say, hey, there it is. The early church, they they were socialists. Everybody had all things in common. Nobody had a lot, nobody had a little. And obviously, our church here is in a location where there is a large population of transient people and homeless people who walk by. And so we need to ask this question and figure this out. Are we as a church in sin for not giving a greater effort to meet the needs of the homeless population around us? Because there, I guarantee you, there are some Christians and some churches who would say we are. Who does the Lord Jesus require us to care for financially and materially? And here's why it's so important to get the question right. Because getting the answer to that question wrong jeopardizes the mission of the church. We're talking about the mission of the church here. And if we get it wrong, we actually could miss what Jesus' commission to the church is. Whenever the church believes that its primary purpose is to distribute resources to anyone and everyone, and whenever the church sees its primary purpose in the earth as alleviating physical suffering, notice I said primary purpose. Not that we don't have freedom to do that or that we shouldn't from time to time when we have occasion. But the primary purpose, whenever the church sees its primary purpose as alleviating physical burden, it will inevitably forfeit its Christ-commissioned calling to make disciples through the preaching of the gospel and through administrating the sacraments and by building up the church through teaching and equipping disciples to live lives to the glory of Christ. We will exchange that if we see our primary purpose as just merely alleviating physical suffering and burden. We have to see that our primary mission is to save and minister to the spiritual needs of man. And if physical, if, if bearing physical burdens aids in that and we can do good to people, praise God. But our primary calling is to minister the Gospel so that people can be reconciled to their God who they are currently an enemy of through Christ and by baptizing them and by teaching them in local churches all that Jesus has commanded. And so we are, as Christians, free to be merciful. We should be merciful. We should be gracious. We should be compassionate. We should be generous. And we have the freedom to do Mercy Ministries. And I want to reiterate that. We do have that freedom. Yet, Paul instructs Timothy with apostolic authority and says there are certain people that you have to care for and it's those in your midst who are truly in need. And here's the caveat. The Bible gets to define what it means to be truly in need. Not our culture. Not our own feelings. The Bible gets to define what it means to be in need. And so what biblical support do we have for the assertion that the church is primarily responsible to care for those in need within its own midst, first and foremost, rather than those outside of its midst? Because many Christians would say, no, that's backwards. We need to flip that around. We need to primarily focus on caring for those outside the four walls of the church. And so do we have biblical warrant for this? And I, I think we do. Uh, we see efforts to collect money to distribute to the poor saints in Jerusalem when there was a severe famine. So in Acts 11, 27-30, it says, Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. Now listen, so the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So we see the church cared for the church when there was a famine. The disciples sent relief to the brothers and they didn't just do it kind of, Uh, free freely, just free distribution. They took it by Paul and Barnabas who were above reproach and chosen for the ministry and they gave it to the elders. There was a system. This was structured, Uh, you know, and speaking of Acts 2, we do see people voluntarily, not being mandated, but voluntarily selling their possessions and distributing the proceeds to anyone who had need. But who did they distribute it to? They didn't just walk around Jerusalem giving it to everybody equally. They distribute it to the saints. Those in the church who had need. In Acts 6, there is a daily distribution of food for widows. Which widows? Believing widows. And then in Galatians 6.10, he says, so then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Especially to those who are of the household of faith. And so we do see in the New Testament from the very beginning of its formulation, a very real benevolence ministry within the local church. There are certain circumstances and certain people that the church is obligated to care for materially. And so focusing in on 1 Timothy 5, we see that there are two kinds of people that the church is responsible to care for and to honor materially and financially. In the first group, we see in verse 17, where he says, let the elders who rule well be considered of, worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So the church's primary overseers, uh, the primary uh, elders who labor in the word and in teaching, the church is responsible to honor them and care for them materially. And that's all I'll say about that because that will be our passage for next week. Uh, but then again, this passage shows us a second group uh, that the church is obligated to support, and they're the people that Paul calls true widows, those who are truly widows. And perhaps I should just say here before moving. Any further, that there is a historical and social context to this passage uh, that, at the very least, we need to acknowledge uh, so that we don't become overly concerned with the details and actually miss the point. Uh, Paul is writing to Timothy, who is pastoring a real church in Ephesus with real people, uh, real widows, real elders, and it's impossible for us to perfectly understand the details and the challenges of the uh, church at Ephesus in the first century. So these verses are challenging to understand with absolute specificity. And so when we come to a passage like this, the first thing we need to acknowledge is that it's not an exhaustive treatment on everything the church can do with its money. That's not what Paul is intending this passage to be. However, this text does give us the kind of apostolic thinking that we need to be in line with when we do think about our own benevolence ministry 2,000 years later in a totally different culture. We don't need to be far away from Paul's thinking. We need to be right in line with his thinking when we think about our own day and age. And so in verse 9, Paul says, let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age. And so John Mark mentioned this last week. But We must understand that the life expectancy for a woman in the first century was extremely low. Many women died in childbirth. And so for a widow, for a woman to live beyond 60, likely would have meant that she would have outlived her husband and in many cases, her adult children. And so there would have been very few women over the age of 60 at this point. And he says in verse 5 She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. And so it's not like social security or something here, right? Uh, Paul is not saying that if a woman meets the age of 60, then she's obligated to receive a check from the church for the rest of her life. That's not what Paul is saying. What, you know, what is the point? He's saying if a widow is 60 or older, she is largely beyond the age of marrying and the age of childbearing, and she's likely unable to provide for her own welfare, for her own uh, well-being, her own needs and her provisions. And so the church in honoring her is to come alongside her and care for her. And meet her needs. And make sure that she has what she needs. And to provide sufficient food and clothing and housing and these types of things. That's what it means to honor someone who is truly a widow. And the Lord Jesus has commanded the church to do such a thing. It's commanded us. And so let's just pause right here for a moment and meditate on something. I I don't want us to miss this. What, what does the fact that the Lord Jesus commands the church to care for, for widows that Paul calls true widows, those left all alone with no one else to care for them, what does that teach us about God's character? Well, it teaches us that God cares about the body. He, he doesn't just care about our theology and what we believe. He cares about our body. He cares that we have what we need. He cares. He knows that we need food and clothing and shelter. And he cares for us and he provides these things. And and he's designed it in his church to care for those who are truly in need and to show his love and his provision. And it shows us that God has a special concern for the weak and the vulnerable. Uh, You know, we we see this all throughout Scripture. I'll just read a few texts here as we come to a close. Exodus 22, 22 22-24 You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to Me, I will surely hear their cry. And listen to this. And My wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. Psalm 68.5, Father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in His holy habitation. James one twenty-seven: religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. You know, we could take the rest of our time this morning reading verses about God's concern for widows in the orphan, in the sojourner. And if you read the Gospels with your eyes focused on this, you would see uh, this aspect of God's character fleshed out in Jesus' life. Widows play a a large role in the Gospel narratives. They come up over and over and over and Jesus cares for them. And He raises their, their sons from the dead. It's amazing. God's heart. For the vulnerable. And Paul then giving instructions to Timothy. On how the church is to carry out its benevolence ministry. Commands local churches to provide materially. For those widows who are truly widows. Who have particular need and who are vulnerable. Beyond the age of marrying. And without anyone else to care for them. In their lives. But notice again that Paul does not quickly encourage Timothy to do that in the church, but he puts the demand upon the family, upon those of the household. He wants Timothy to exhaust all the options before placing anyone under the church's material care. And this leads me to a very important point where I want to close. I want to circle back to verse 4. Where he says, but if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents. For this is pleasing in the sight of God. You know, you notice the focus on godliness here. You know, how, how do we show godliness by caring for those in our own household? It, it just seems like it just makes sense. We just do it. Paul says you actually are showing godliness when you do that. It's actually pleasing to God when you provide for your relatives, when you provide their physical needs. Why why is that? Well, think about this. God provides everything for us. He meets our physical needs. He gives us breath to breathe. He gives us our food. He gives us our clothing. And above all, He has provided a sacrifice for our sins. Jehovah-Jireh. Remember remember when Abraham took Isaac upon that mountain to sacrifice him? And Isaac said, where's the burnt offering? And Abraham says, the Lord will provide a sacrifice, Isaac. Jehovah-Jireh will provide a sacrifice for sins. And He has in His own Son given Jesus to be the sacrificial atonement for our sins. God the Son demonstrates ultimate self-sacrifice by humbling Himself and dying on a cross for sinners. Romans 5.8, For God demonstrates His love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You know, the self-denial required to care for those in your own home, it's challenging. It's challenging. Uh, Many of you are in this season with with children and in the years to come, many of us will possibly be in this circumstance with our aging parents. And it's challenging. And it requires self-denial. And it requires self-sacrifice. But brothers and sisters, we must fix it in our minds now. That we should count it a great privilege that God has entrusted to us the opportunity to care for people in our need, in our homes who have needs. Count it a great privilege, brothers. Count it it a demonstration of godliness that you get to go to work and provide for your wife and your children. Count it a great privilege that you get to provide for your aging parents who have cared for you when you were young and you get to pay them back and show godliness and honor the Lord. This is pleasing to the Lord. And in doing so, you are imitating Christ who gave Himself in the highest possible way. Amen? Amen. Well, let's let that thought transition us to the table. Jesus gave Himself for sinners. And He died in their place. And He says to all who will come to Him and believe and turn from their sins that He will give them eternal life. And so if you have received Christ by faith and put your hope and trust in Him and you've been baptized into His name, uh, we would welcome you to come to the table uh, and, and take communion with us. And if not, there are some prayers in your bulletin that you can pray during this time. And if you have any questions about the Gospel, or about how to be saved, uh, please come talk to me or any of our members after the service. So brothers and sisters, take a few moments to pray and meditate on the goodness of God in Christ and all that He's provided for you. And when you're ready, come take the elements and return to your seats. Let me say a prayer for us. Oh great God, uh, we thank You that You have provided all of our needs abundantly in Your Son. Lord, if You did not spare Your own Son, will You not much more give us all things? And the answer is clearly yes. And we thank You, Lord. We thank You for all Your goodness toward us. And I pray that You would help us to go from this place, Lord, and to order our homes and our church rightly after Your design And we pray, Lord, that we would care for those that You have given us to care for and that we would lay down our lives to provide for those in our own homes. Not so that we can be selfish, but so that You can be glorified and pleased. And we thank You for this. In Jesus' name, amen.